Good morning. It is great to see y'all this morning. Good to be in God's house. Good to start a new series today on the book of Exodus. You know, I've been preaching for quite a while, uh, over half my life, and I've never preached the whole book of Exodus before, but that's going to change. So we're starting today. We're going to start with Exodus chapter two. Exodus one is more of a, a bridge between Genesis and Exodus. Chapter two is where the story really begins. So that's where we're going to start. A few weeks ago, my daughter and I went on a vacation together. She's my travel buddy. You know, my, my wife and my son, they can take or leave travel. They, they can do it sometimes, but no big deal. But Kaylee likes to go places. So we're on a, a trip together and we were in a hotel one night and we're trying to figure out what are we going to watch on TV? You know, when you get back to watching TV with commercials, it's a shock to the system, right? And, and so uh, we, we found the movie Shrek. And uh, so that was a big, big movie when my daughter was really little. And so immediately we just said, oh yeah, let's watch Shrek. Now, if you were a kid in the early 2000s, or if you had kids then, you know the story. If you don't, well, it's about a, an animated ogre who is dispatched by the Lord of his land to rescue a princess who's trapped in a tower guarded by a fire-breathing dragon. And he does it. He rescues the princess. She's immensely grateful. And then he makes the mistake of taking off his helmet. And she's disappointed because... All that time she's been trapped in that tower, she's had it in her head what her rescue would be like. In her mind, it's going to be this handsome prince coming in on this dashing white charger, and he's going to sweep her to victory, and he's going to take off his helmet and, and take her into his arms and kiss her, and their curse is going to be over. But instead, what she has for a rescuer is this smelly green monster and his obnoxious talking donkey, who's really the best part of the movie, but still, it's not the way she saw it coming. And in many ways, that reminds me of us as Christians because we expect God to save us. After all, that's what he does, right? And we want him to, to save us in the way we want at the time we want. And we get disappointed when it doesn't follow our own predetermined script. So for instance, if I have illness and I need healing, if I have financial troubles and I can't pay my bills, if I have brokenness in my family, I look at the miracles in the Bible and I say, hey, Jesus, you stilled a storm. You walked on water. You raised the dead. You fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. Why can't you spare a miracle for me? Or if I'm struggling with doubts, as most Christians do at some point or another, if I'm struggling with, Lord, I'm not sure that I trust you. I'm not sure that you're as wise as the word says, or maybe you don't care as much as I thought. Maybe you're not even really there. I look at the story of Jesus making himself known to, to Thomas a week after the resurrection and dispelling Thomas's doubts immediately. And I think, why can't you do that for me? Just show up in my bedroom, show up in my office, just appear to me. It'll only take 30 seconds and my problems will be solved. Don't you have 30 seconds for me? Or maybe I'm watching the news and I see all the evil things that human beings do to one another and all the terrible things that happen in the, in the course of this world. And I, I think, Lord, why aren't you springing into action? Why aren't you, why aren't you fixing things? The book of Exodus is about God saving. It's about God fixing things. It's about God doing these spectacular miracles. We see a, a sea part and people walk through on dry land. We see water burst from a rock and people are able to drink in the desert. We see food that lands on the ground every morning. You wake up and there's bread waiting for you. Uh, we see plagues fall upon the people who've enslaved God's children and, and bring this mighty kingdom to its knees. 
But the story starts in chapter two with a series of small miracles. Things that when we look at them, we picture ourselves in that situation and we don't, we don't think we would have seen God working because we wouldn't have, because that's how God does most of his work. It's not through the big things, it's through the small things, the things you don't even notice while they're happening. This is also the founding story of the nation of Israel. You know how we as Americans, we look to the shot heard around the world at Lexington. We look to the Constitutional Convention in, in Philadelphia and we say, okay, that's when our nation was born. Well, if you're an Israelite, even to this day, you look at the Exodus in the same way. And the New Testament, aside from two books, was written by Jews. So there are tons of echoes of Exodus in the New Testament. In many ways, the Exodus is gospel in beta form. It's just, it's starting here and it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And we're gonna see many, many ways that what we read here, the stories here, find their ultimate fulfillment in the gospel and in the stories of the New Testament. But then most of all, the book of Exodus is a story about who God is. Because remember, at the end of the book of Genesis, the only people on earth who know who God is is this one family, the family of Abraham. By the end of the book of Exodus, he is known. God makes himself known, and he makes himself known as the God who saves. That's what he does. And that's what we're going to be talking about today and for the rest of this series. What it means that he is a, a God who saves. Hallelujah. God above it all, you have done great things, as we sang. He is a God who saves. So let's start at, in kind of an interesting place. At the end of chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that kind of language often where it says things like God saw, God remembered, God heard, God knew. And it makes it sound like God is a typical male. You know, men are not good at multitasking as much as we think we are. I like to cook and yet I'm bad at cooking several things at once, which is one of the keys to making a good meal. And so oftentimes it will happen that I'll have something going in the in the iron skillet and something in one of the pots boiling on the surface unit and something in the oven and I'll get distracted and all of a sudden what's in the iron skillet starts to burn and, and you know the smoke rises and it's not a pleasing offering to the Lord and you know my kids are like okay I guess it's pizza tonight I wish mom would have cooked and that's life right and, and we look at the the story of scripture and we think oh is that what it means that God is He's sort of forgotten his people for a while but then they pray and he remembers them no that's not the way it works. God never takes his eyes off of his children and God never gets distracted and he never goes to sleep. So what does that mean? It means whenever it says, whenever it uses that kind of language, what it's saying is this is when God's saving action started. This is when his plan started forming and it, he, he went into action on our behalf. And I can prove it to you. In Genesis 15, God is talking to his servant Abraham. And he says these words, Genesis 15, verse 13. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So you remember, Abraham was just this old Aramean dude and God came to him and said, you're gonna be a great nation. And he's like, look at me, look at my wife. We're both old, we've never been able to have children. He says, don't worry, I'm God, I can do this. And by the way, you're not just gonna become a nation, you're gonna become the nation, the race of people through whom I'm gonna bring salvation to the world because through you, all nations of the world will be blessed. That's Genesis 12. You skip ahead in time to Abraham's great-grandsons. The great-grandsons are the 12 sons of Jacob. One of them is Joseph. Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt. It's a great story all its own. If you don't know it, read it. But that ends up bringing all those 12 patriarchs to live in Egypt, where they prosper, where they multiply. And after several hundred years, along comes a Pharaoh, a king of Egypt, who doesn't know who Jacob, who Joseph was, who doesn't know all that that man did for the people, how he saved Egypt from starvation. And this Pharaoh comes along and all he knows is there's all these migrants in his land who don't look like us and don't speak our language and don't worship our God. And they're going to, they're going to destroy us. They're going to cause economic collapse, if not military destruction. And so we need to deal with this problem. And that's been a, a course of action throughout history. Whenever some powerful nation has a group of people that are suddenly multiplying and they're not the minor, they're not the majority group. There's all this panic. There's all this blaming. And it's especially true it's been especially true of the Jews throughout history. You do some historical research, it is amazing how many different countries have decided at some point or another, hey, let's kill the Jews. Let's get rid of the Jewish people. And we see it here in, in Egypt. We see it later in the, New in the Old Testament in, in the Philistines. We see it in the Assyrians. We see it in the Persians through Haman. We see it in, in extra biblical history through basically every, every country in Europe at some point or another tried to wipe out the Israelites. And yet they're still here, which means either these are some incredibly resilient people or more likely God has a plan for them that will exist at the end of time. So Pharaoh's plan is, let's put these people to work. They're doing too well over there in the land of Goshen. Let's make them our slaves. We've got some cities to build. Let's put them to work. We don't have to pay them. And then he turns them into bricklayers. Uh, I'm sorry, brickmakers and bricklayers, basically both. And you may think, well, I'd rather be a brick, brick uh, maker, but think about what that means. In the ancient world, it means all day you're grabbing clay and straw, mixing them together, mashing them into these molds, shoving them into a white hot oven, and then pulling them out after a few minutes and carrying them outside. You spend all day inside this enclosed area with this smoke, this, uh, this rising red dust that cakes the inside of your nose and your throat and gets down into your lungs. And it cakes your skin and dries and your skin begins to crack. And it's a miserable, miserable life. But you're fortunate because your brother or your sister, they're out there working in the hot, hot sun in, in, in northern Africa in the, in the blaring heat, building these cities for these people. And if you fall behind, you get beaten. And if you get sick, you get left to die. And it's all the plan to get rid of you and your entire race. And God saw it all coming as he shared with Abraham, saw it centuries ahead of time. So why doesn't he do something about it? I'm sure that's what the Israelite must, Israelites must have thought. 
Where's God? Why, is that, why isn't he doing something? And the fact is, is Exodus 2 it will show us he is doing something. It's just not what we would expect. So the story begins with a, a, group, of, a group of women, actually. We think of Exodus as the story of Moses, and he is the main character aside from God. But there are five heroes that precede Moses, and they're all women. And two of them, two of them are named Shifra and Puah, not names we name our daughters these days. But these women were midwives. Their job was to deliver Israelite babies. And Pharaoh gathers them into his palace and he sits them down and he says, okay, you two, your job from this point forward is when you deliver an Israelite baby, if it's a male child, you put it to death. Now, that sounds brutal to us and it is. But in the ancient world, it wasn't considered a big deal. We actually have a letter from Alexandria a thousand years after the Exodus in which a businessman has gone on a trip to Rome. He's doing business in the capital city and he mails his wife back home. Archaeologists have found this letter. In the letter, it, just, it bas says basic household stuff. Uh, here's what you to do with the servants. Here's what you to do with the harvest. Here's what you to do at the house. Oh, and by the way, if the baby's born while I'm still gone, if it's a girl, kill it. This is what a man says to his wife about his own flesh and blood. And that's the way the world was back then. Girls were seen in the ancient world as a financial burden. If you had too many daughters, you were probably going to be poor because your daughters, before they got married, you'd have to care for them. And if they didn't get married, you'd have to care for them for the rest of your life. Whereas if you had sons, they could help you economically. They could get out into the fields. They could be workers, unpaid workers. And yet here's Pharaoh saying to these two midwives, kill the boys. Why? Well, because in the Egyptian thinking, women could be assimilated into Egyptian culture. They could be forced to marry Egyptian men. They could be forced into prostitution. Eventually, they'd be bred out of existence, whereas the men, you couldn't do that with them. They were sort of a roadblock in the way of getting rid of the Hebrew race, and so you kill those boys. By the way, if you're, if you're thinking, what a brutal world to be a child or a woman, you're absolutely right. You know what changed all that? A guy named Jesus came along. A guy named Jesus, who against all cultural norms had women followers, who made himself known to a woman on the day of resurrection when the male disciples, two of them, James, John and, and Peter, had been there at the tomb, and he let them leave, made himself known to Mary Magdalene, who taught men to love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay down your life for her. Everything changed when Jesus came along for women, for children. But that's a side note. That's a sermon for another day. Shifra and Pua have this awful dilemma. They've been commanded by their boss and the king of the nation, kill every male Hebrew child. They choose to do the courageous thing. They go back to Pharaoh and they say, listen, Pharaoh, these Hebrew women are, they're stronger than your Egyptians. They give birth before we even get there. So we can't fulfill what you've told us to do. So Pharaoh says, okay, if that plan won't work, I will make it the law of the land that every Israelite family is responsible. When you have a child, if it's a male, you throw it in the Nile. If you don't, if I find out you've kept your male child, your whole family is dead. And that brings us to our next hero. Her name is not given to us in chapter two, but her story is. Chapter six tells us her name. Her name is Jochebed. Jochebed. Here's her story. Chapter two, verse one. 
Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Here's something interesting. The word basket in Hebrew is the exact same word that in Genesis 6 is translated ark, as in Noah's ark. So isn't that, isn't that interesting? That's the only two places in the Bible the word is used. Noah built an ark of wood that, that housed all the animals of the earth and, and, and these six people. Jochebed makes a tiny ark out of papyrus reeds and tar just to save her little boy. This little boy she's been hiding for three months, refusing to follow the king's command, putting herself and her husband and the rest of her family in jeopardy. And when I was growing up, I heard this story over and over again. And I always thought the mom just put him in the water and watched the river take him and just basically prayed, Lord, protect him. It was sort of a Hail Mary pass, but Actually, when you read the story, it says she, she placed him among the reeds. In other words, she put him in a very specific spot where the water wasn't flowing, where he would sit for a while. She knew that was where the women of Pharaoh's household came to bathe during the day. And she was hoping one of those women, maybe a servant girl, maybe if she was really, really lucky, maybe, maybe one of the women in Pharaoh's harem would, would take pity on this little baby and, and take care of it. But her expectations were by far exceeded because it was Pharaoh's own daughter who drew that child out of the water. And that's what the name Moses means in Egyptian. I drew him out of the water. And so the fourth hero is this princess whose name we don't even know. Isn't it ironic? She's the only one of the five women that we're looking at who had any cultural power. And yet the author of Exodus says, well, you don't need to know her name. She's the daughter of the king. She sees this child and adopts him. Like so many today, so many Christian people are, are doing God's work by fostering or adopting children and, and bringing them into their home. That's what this woman does. Compassion leads to action. And that leads to, I'm sure, some really interesting conversations in the palace. Can't you just hear Pharaoh scolding his daughter and saying, here I am trying to wipe these people out and you bring one into my own home? Boy, if you were any woman other than my daughter, I'd have your head. And then that leads to our fifth hero. And that's young Miriam, the oldest child of Jochebed, the big sister of little baby Moses, who sits down in those reeds and watches just to see what's going to happen to her baby brother. And when the princess pulls that basket out, she comes walking up, wise beyond her years, just as if she had just been, happened to be passing by and says, oh, your majesty, you're probably aware that there's, there's a whole bunch of Hebrew women who have milk but no babies. You want me to go find one for you so she can nurse this child for you? And the, and the princess says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Go. And that's how it is that Jochebed is able to nurse her child, which is illegal in Egypt, and get paid for it. If you ever think, if you ever wonder if God is smarter than the devil, read this story. It's just one of many examples where the devil says, aha, I got you. And God's like, yeah, let me show you. Not only is Jochebed able to raise her own child, but Moses is able to know from the very beginning who he really is. And that becomes very important later on in our story. 
He has access to the best of what Egypt has to offer, nutrition, education, training, and yet from the start, he knows that he's a man of Israel. And that leads to the next story in verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And there's two other passages that refer to this story in the New Testament. One is Hebrews 11, 24 through 25. It's always good to see what scripture says about itself. Hebrews 11, 24 says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then Acts 7, 23 mentions this story and says that Moses was around 40 years old when this happened. So combining those three accounts tells us that Moses had lived all of his youth in the lap of luxury, in a life of indulgence, in a, in a comfortable existence. But at the age of around 40, he chose to break with his past. He chose to do the hard thing and identify with his enslaved people, even though it cost him everything. He ends up running to the deserts of Midian, which culturally is about as far as you can get from the palace. And he finds more injustice when he gets there. There's, he comes upon this group of little shepherd girls who are being uh, bullied by this group of male shepherds. And we already know that Moses can take care of himself. So he goes and intervenes and beats up these shepherds or intimidates them. Anyway, he intervenes and is able to help these shepherd girls water their flocks. That leads to him meeting their father and becoming the husband of one of those girls. So what do we know about Moses so far? What do we know about him? We know he's grown up in the palace of the greatest superpower of the world at that time. So he's probably very aware of leadership strategy. He's also courageous and strong enough to kill a man with his bare hands. He's got skills. He has an instinct for standing up for people who can't take care of themselves. And he's chosen to identify with his own enslaved people. So in, in every way, he seems like the perfect hero for right now. This seems like the perfect time for him to arise up and head back into Egypt and start a revolution and overthrow the evil ones. I mean, this is, this is the perfect hero. If I were writing the story, that's how it would go. Just slap a leather suit on him, give him some cool gadgets and a British butler, and he's Batman. He, he's, the, he's the hero that, that Israel deserves, but not the one they need, right? But that's not what happens. For 40 years... This man in the prime of his life with all the equipment we think he needs tends the sheep of his father-in-law. His father-in-law, Jethro, for 40 years. Now, I haven't been 80 years old yet. I hope to get there someday. I'm pretty much assuming it's not going to feel like 40. I'm pretty much assuming there are skills that I had at 40 that I won't have when I'm 80. And that's probably true of Moses. Why did God wait? As far as we know, God never made himself known to Moses. As far as we know, Mo God, Moses didn't even have a relationship with God at this point. Why did he let him wait all those years? The Bible doesn't tell us. 
My assumption, and it's purely my assumption, is that God wanted to humble Moses because he tends to use humble heroes. And I tell you, I'm just guessing 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep for your father-in-law, Jethro Bodine, <laughs> that's going to that's gonna tend to humble you quite a bit. So what do we get from this story? Next week, we'll see the part we find much more familiar as Moses meets God in the burning bush and his, his story really begins. But what do we get from this story so far? Three things. Number one, we almost never see what God is up to when we're in the middle of our story. You think about the great stories of history. Think about the great stories that we all love so much. In every one of them, isn't there a point where the hero thinks there's no hope? When the situation seems so dark, it seems like there can't possibly be a happy ending. In Shawshank Redemption, it's, it's the moment when, when Red, the, the narrator, knows that Andy has taken some rope into the jail cell with him and he thinks he's going to hang himself before the night is through. In Star Wars, the, the whole Star Wars series, it's when Darth Vader cuts off Luke's hand and freezes Han Solo in kryptonite. Kryptonite? Whatever, carbonite. Yeah, there you go. I got it, I got it mixed up. Okay, I'm going to redeem myself. So in the MCU, it's when Thanos snaps his fingers and half of the universe goes up in smoke. In the fairy tales, it's when Snow White bites the poison apple or Princess Aurora pricks her finger on the spindle. And if you're in those stories, you know, you've seen those movies before, you've read those books before, you want to say to the main character, it's going to be okay. I know you think all is lost, but you're going to be all right. Well, believe it or not, you're in the middle of a story right now. And some of you are in the middle of a dark point in your story. And God is the author. And I don't mean that everything that happened to you was God's express will, because I don't think that's the way life works. But here's the way I do think life works. Whatever this world throws at you or whatever you bring upon yourself, God is able to write it into his plan of redemption so that his, his plan of redemption is never destroyed. And the only way you can experience the destruction of God's plan of redemption in your life is to walk away. And that's what I'm telling you not to do. And you might say, well, I, I'm not a character in a fable or a fairy tale or a comic book or a movie. Well, neither were those midwives when they stood before the king of the land who gave them an immoral order. And it could be that you, one of these days, if it hasn't happened already, work in a place where you're assigned something that you know is wrong or or you are in a situation where the cultural pressures, the peer pressure of your face says, go this way, and you know that God wants you to go that way. Neither was Jochebed when she knew she had to stand up to defend her family. And many of us who are parents have that moment or those many moments where we know there are forces coming for our children, for our marriage, and we have to stand up for what's right. Neither was Moses when God came to him. And we'll talk about that next week. It's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. Moses really had to choose. Am I going to go into Egypt at 80 years old and face the one who can snap his fingers and put me to death? God has a plan for your life, a plan to work you into his story of redemption. And it's so much easier to just say, no, I'd rather just live for me. We almost never see what God's up to when we're in the middle of the story. My word to you is don't give up on him. Second thing we learn, God uses our small acts of obedience in ways we can't foresee. 
You know, when you read this story, you think Moses is the hero and he becomes a hero later on. But here at the beginning, he's not. He's a guy who doesn't get things right. In fact, when he, when he springs into action and kills that Egyptian, we think, okay, that's our action hero. He's the one we'll follow. Good things are going to happen. But he kills the Egyptian and nothing happens. Nothing happens for 40 years. And yet these five women do their much smaller, much less heroic sounding actions, and yet much more courageous, and yet much more profound. Think about these small acts, how they become big miracles in God's hands. And that's the way I see God work over and over and over again. We choose the right path. We choose to put someone else ahead of ourselves, and God takes that and makes it into something big. So what is your small act of obedience going to be this week? Maybe, maybe there's uh, someone at your work or your school that you know you need to befriend. And this week you perform some act of kindness and thoughtfulness for them. You find out later they were on the verge of taking their own life. If someone hadn't gone to them, someone hadn't shown them love. Maybe there's someone you're mad at and have been held a grudge against for years. And the two of you have been estranged. And this week is the week you go and you say, listen, I apologize completely. I forgive you for whatever you did to me. And I am confessing to you all the things I've done to you. And not only does that bring about reconciliation between you and that person, which is beautiful, but your actions, your humility convict her heart. And she begins to see uh, about the ways that she misuses anger and bitterness. And she changes the way she relates to her husband and her children. And a whole generation is transformed. Or maybe you and your spouse say, you know, it's time for us to start making a contribution. It's time for us to actually take a percentage of our income and give it to the Lord's work. And in obedience, you think, well, my little income isn't going to make, make a difference. And yet, when you get to heaven someday, you meet a family of people who heard about Jesus because of what you gave. Or maybe... You've been meaning to get involved in a transforming relationship. Maybe there's a neighbor uh, that you've said, ah, we need to invite them over to the house and, and just get to know them better. But every week it's something. It's, oh, I've got tests or I've had a bad week or my kids have a lot of homework. But this week you say, no more excuses. Let's call them. Let's put it on the calendar. Let's get together. And that's the beginning of a transforming relationship that leads to some people being saved and lives being changed and, and generations being changed forever. See, I've seen God do it. He takes our small acts of obedience and he turns them into miracles. And then third, the third thing we take from this story, he is the God who saves. He is the God who saves. In just a moment, we're gonna sing a song, the Lord is my salvation. And I want you to sing that with all your heart. You know why? Because the book of Exodus finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. And I'll give you just one example today. You're going to be hearing lots more in the weeks to come. Exodus 6.17 says, we are by nature slaves of sin. In other words, in the same way, Israelite after Israelite, generation after generation was born into a world where they didn't say, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a school teacher. I'm going to be a baseball player. I'm going to be a whatever. They just woke up or were born into a world where they knew I'm going to make bricks. I'm going to carry bricks on my shoulders. I'm going to be a mason who builds these cities for the people who oppress us. And there was no hope at all. They were slaves. And in the same way, you and I were born into a world where we are slaves to our sin nature, where every day we go out and we just do what comes naturally to us and we think it's freedom and it just makes us more and more enslaved to our appetites. 
as it damages others, as it pushes us further away from God. And we were lost in that. And Jesus said, I'm not leaving my people in Egypt. And he came and he was our Moses who rescued us, but he didn't do it the way we think he should. Remember the the first time Jesus ever told his disciples what the full plan was? It was just a few weeks before Good Friday. They'd been with him for three years and he said, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna be arrested. I'm gonna be handed over to the Romans. They're gonna crucify me. And his disciples didn't say, thank you, Lord, for finally telling us the plan. We are fully on board. No, they said, this can never happen. You've got it all wrong, Lord. But aren't you glad Jesus didn't let them talk him out of it? Because the greatest thing that ever happened The greatest thing anyone has ever done for you or me didn't look like a miracle when it happened. It looked like crushing defeat. And yet when Jesus died on that cross at the hands of sinful men, he was rescuing us once and for all. A a day of defeat turns out into fantastic victory. The greatest miracle of all didn't look like a miracle at all. So this week, when you think about obeying God, taking an extra step of obedience, this week, when you look at the trials you're going through and how can I trust God and where is he, remember the cross. The cross answers every question. If he would do that for us, can't we trust him? If he, can, if he would do that for us, shouldn't we obey him?